Notes from the Upper West Side, a novel by Dan Wrench. Chapter 14, Live and Learn. I didn't know why Bang was interested, but it was something to talk about while waiting for the sweaty film boys to get things squared away, or their shit together, or their film all on a roll, or whatever they call it when their asses are finally in gear. Yeah, I told Bang. You could say Libby hates Parp. In a way. After a fashion. And yeah, it's the same Kurt Libby I told you about way back in that early chapter, chapter 5 or 6 or something. You remember. The tubby fuck ex-wrestler from Ann Arbor who got the serial blowjob from Constance that weekend so long ago when we were all just barely out of high school. Kurt Libby of the Kurt and Constance episode. The event that drove me into therapy and made me come to terms with my need to be lord of all tale. To the extent that I have come to terms with it. Kurt's around. He's in the city. Like I told Bang, he tends bar in the restaurant at the Commodore Hotel, the big one on 6th Avenue. He poured Bill Clinton a drink once. Wife, no kids but three cats, lives near Riverside Drive in the 90s. When we graduated from college, Kurt belonged to that little group of kids I decided I could live without ever seeing again. So it was a good decade or so before I ran into him, even though we only lived about 30 blocks from each other in Manhattan. In 1994, I went down to Soho to audition for Depth Charge Repertory Theater, and boom. There was Kurt Libby on the other side of the table, a lot thinner and almost no hair. Kurt was a member of Depth Charge Rep. And after my interview and audition, he recommended me to be a member. Bygones being bygones and water being under the bridge, the way it often is when time passes and you wonder what happened to your old chums and you wish you could see them again just to tell them. It's okay. So there we were, me and Kurt Libby in the mid-1990s, members of Depth Charge Rep, which back in those days used to call itself the, quote, home of literate theater, unquote and produced almost exclusively Oscar Wilde plays. Critics found that weird. A bunch of Americans off-Broadway doing British comedy from a century earlier. So then it became the, quote, home of dangerous theater, end quote. And every production we did was pretty much a new play about people in square relationships who end up having strange sex with partners they later have to kill. Critics thought we were a lot better suited to that kind of play than we were to Salome and Lady Windermere's fan. We did a few critically acclaimed shows, too. See, right about then was when the New York Times hired a guy to go around reviewing off-Broadway shows instead of just Broadway. And a couple years later was when theaters started having websites. Before that, you had to advertise or get publicity in newspapers and magazines, and that was a struggle in and of itself. Raising money for advertising and press agents, never mind mounting the actual show. So in the 80s, you could make magic and pretty much be ignored by everyone, unless you had connections. And if you didn't have the connections yourself, you could pay out the ass for a press agent's connections, which he or she delivered on maybe half the time. 
But like I said, in the mid to late 90s, all that started to change. You could actually get a public presence and a New York Times review without having to pay extortion to some reptile who left slime wherever she fed. Depth Charge did three or four shows that the New York Times guy, I forget his name right now, just loved. The last one, the biggest deal, was this play called Smile Shine, which was sort of a sequel to Death of a Salesman, only not written by Arthur Miller. So the writer had to be careful about not using the same character names and other legal stuff. Kurt and me played the late Billy Corman's aging sons Riff and Slappy. It was great. At the end of the first act, Riff, me, drills Slappy's wife up the ass while she begs him not to. And in the third act, just before the lights come down, she blows his brains out with Slappy's 12-gauge while he begs her not to. We did 96 performances and got great reviews. Celebs came to see us. I have the clippings. Then right after it closed, a lot of ego shit happened and envy shit and bottom line, we all got pissed off at each other and the company broke up. Kurt and me were pretty down about it, but we kept the friendship going. Off and on we talk about maybe putting another troupe together or maybe just doing another show, but so far we haven't really done anything about it. When we first hooked back up back in the 90s when I ran into him at Depth Charge, we had a lot of laughs about the old college days. Of course, we had to deal with the Kurt and Constance episode. Put it behind us, get it out of the way, laugh about it. I needed to be Lord of All Tale, I confessed, although putting it in the past tense made it less of a confession. It's what got me into therapy. I told him all about Fritz Koch and my problem. He seemed really sympathetic, almost ashamed. Like you get when you're really hard on somebody for being a jackass and later you find out they've got valid emotional issues. It was like he realized that even though it was my fault for acting like a paranoid freak, in another sense, it wasn't my fault that it was my fault. He laughed. I laughed. We got a little misty. We drank beers. And over those same years, Libby and Parp got pretty tight, even though Parp had zero to do with depth charge rep, except to come to a few performances. I think he was trying to fuck one of the actresses at one point, but I never found out what was really going on there. All I know is one night she was crying, and the next night she said she was going to nail Parp's cock to the call board. And even though I was tight with Libby, and Parp was tight with him, the three of us never hung together except maybe for one Christmas party where Parp showed up for a few hours. He was starting to click with some short chick with spiky hair, but he split before he got any info on her other than her first name. So later he called up Kurt for her phone number or email or something. And Kurt turned him down. No can do, Parpe, he said. She's got a boyfriend. Now, that may not sound like such a terrible objection. Loyalty is important. Maybe you could say that Kurt was being a little presumptuous. He could have let the girl speak for herself, but at least his heart was in the right place, right? Well, here's the thing. For about a year before that, Kurt had been fucking an actress from Depth Charge, and I think I might have already mentioned that he was, how shall I phrase this, married. Now, who's a guy to turn to when he needs to fuck around on his wife and not get judged for it? Parp, of course. Not only is Parp not married himself, but he thinks marriage is a feudal institution that kills the souls of the participating humans. So Libby goes to Parp, tells him his marriage has turned into a big gray photo of life in prison, and by the way, can he use Parp's apartment to bang his babe in? 
Harp says yes, of course, the amoral turd. Six months later, Kurt and the actress get tired of fucking each other, and two months after that, Libby tells Parp he won't give him a chick's phone number because she has a boyfriend. So I asked Libby when I heard about it, you don't think that was a weird place to start taking a stand for monogamy? I gig cackled when I asked it. We were at a diner on 92nd and Broadway. He seemed taken off guard. Well, you know, he said, I mean, some... Some things, I mean relationships, have to be respected, he said. He stared at me like it was real important I buy it. I just gig cackled. He sighed, then he laughed. Okay, look, it's like this, okay? I guess I had a bit of a crush on this girl. What you call a crush, you know? And, you know, there was Parp acting like I wasn't even there. Sort of like, yeah, Kurt couldn't be anything to this girl. The only thing Kurt could be good for is getting her information for me. Tony Parp. He took a long quaff of his beer, then said, It's like I wasn't even there. Like I'm a fat guy, or I'm out of it, or I don't have a deck. You know what that's like? Indeed I do. Even after Kurt refused to give Parp the girl's number, the two of them still worked on a bunch of crap together, mostly short films. But their friendship had definitely reached its denouement. One day, I'm sitting over on that big green couch with a scotch in my hand and I'm thinking, what the fuck is wrong? Ever have a moment like that? I'm like, shit, something's been wrong for a long time. What the fuck is it? And then it came into my head, like a little message handwritten on a pulse deck. It's Parp. You know what I mean? He's just fucking depressing the shit out of me. Look, I was around this guy for a long time. I was starting to feel like a sellout for having a wife and cats and not fucking the first slut he pushed my way. He waved at the waitress for another beer there. Or maybe he wanted to check. I forget. I remember him waving. You know how he does that, right? He asked. Parp pushes sluts your way? You know, it's like, okay, you're hanging with him. You're just talking about normal day-to-day shit. Then suddenly he's like, you gotta have a gem in your apartment. And you're like, okay, that's an idea. Where do I put it? And he's like, you'll have plenty of room as soon as you get rid of the wife and cats. The cats too? <laughs> he laughed. You know, okay, not the cats, but you know part, man. To do the littlest thing, you'll have to change your life completely. So bottom line, end of day, takeaway thing, Parp depressed me. Day in, day out, no matter what I wanted to do, I was starting to think I had to change my whole life to do it. One day, no shit, this honest to God happened. It's Sunday and real quiet, and I'm out getting a Red Bull and I'm thinking, I have to audition more. And that makes me sad because the next thing I think is, how am I going to tell Candace I'm moving out? So I stopped returning Parp's calls and after a while I got back to feeling like, hey, I like my wife and cats. It made Candace happy. She was sure Parp was going to roll some piece of snatch my way and I'd end up popping it. So Candace didn't trust you, huh, Kurt? She didn't trust Parp, know what I mean? Parp's side of the story was shorter. Kurt and Candace Libby remind me of Jude the Obscure only with cats instead of kids, he said. I never read Jude the Obscure, but when I mentioned to Libby that Parp said he and Candace reminded him of that book, Libby kind of freaked. And ever since then, whenever Parp's name comes up, all he can say is, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. Live and learn.
Notes from the Upper West Side is a work of fiction. The people depicted in this work do not exist. Notes from the Upper West Side, copyright 2013 to 2014, by Dan Wrench.